Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. It's a real honour to be able to work with someone as a mentor because I feel like a relationship between a mentor and an athlete is a two-way street. Today in this interview, we were fortunate enough to be able to sit down with Hannah Clark. Hannah has the most incredible story and she has been someone who has given me education back as her mentor and sitting across the table from her in this conversation it became quickly apparent that sometimes I wonder if I have anything more to add for Hannah. Not only is her story amazing but so is her approach to life. Hannah somehow manages to juggle a career in medicine, her personal expectations and, and desire to I guess stop rowing backwards and start running forwards and strive towards running excellence. And we also, in this conversation, delve deep into a discussion about nutrition and the health system. If you're in for, in for the long ride, you're going to love it. If you don't have a lot of time and you need to skip forward, jump to the ending because I'm not going to give it away, but her last comments and advice to us all was a pot of gold and it's something that has been lingering on in my brain um, ever since this conversation. So I hope that you love Han and uh, come away as inspired as us from this discussion. jump straight into you are going to be a doctor at the end of the year. is correct, yes. And you've gone from an elite level rower to starting in trail running and doing quite well. How do you juggle all of that at the Um, same time? I think it's a daily recalibration. So I think there are going to be times of the year where one thing will take priority over other things. Um, And you kind of can map that out on a like longer term basis depending on what you know you have coming up so like last year um, heading into my final exams definitely running took more of a back seat and it was more about training but for um, the mental release as much as keeping some base fitness but then over the summer you can be the dog off the lead and um, get stuck into some of that stuff again and then on kind of a small level I think day to day it's about listening to your body um some things you can't change I have to be at the hospital at seven in the morning and I'm gonna have to be there until whenever the day ends which could be five seven eight o'clock at night um and some days that's standing or walking all day with minimal food so your training has to adjust to that so yeah I think it's just about not ever being too rigid about things and um also just being organised, doing those small things the night before, packing your lunch, getting your breakfast ready, getting your clothes out so that every spare moment you have you can um, use to do those things that make your toes tingle, as Hanny would say. <laughs> the, the adjusting, is that something you've got better at or have you just always been Definitely. able to do that? No. Um, in a past life when I was um, in a different sport, I 
I felt like I carried guilt all the time. Um, when I was at doing med, I felt guilty about not doing enough training for rowing. And when I was training for rowing, I was thinking about how should have been studying for med. Um, and I found it really hard to ever let go of some sessions. You know, there are just some times when you've got to cut your warm-up or your cool-down and just get your central stuff in or um, that swim that you just might not be able to do and it's got to be a quick ice, icy shower at the end of the day instead. And it used to just weigh on me. Um, but I think as I've gone along um, and always keeping at the front of my mind why I'm doing it, what's the role of this in my life, helps with... Um, letting go of the need to be perfect in terms of following your training program or what you've set out for yourself to do that day. Sometimes things happen and you're just not going to get through your to-do list that day. Well, as, as <laughs> Hannah, that totally sits with me as well, you know, and I think that's also part of growing up, hey, you know, where we I guess when you grow up, you take on more responsibilities and you learn to almost be an adult. Mm. Um, I've had the joy of working with you for a few years, just being someone in the background, a bit of a mentor. But I think we both know that there's a dark side to elite sport. Mm. What would you say has been the dark side for you? And can you tell us a bit more about where you started as an athlete? Absolutely. So um, my kind of introduction to the sporting world was through rowing. I was a lightweight rower who um, I competed for Australia. So first made the Australian team in 2011 as an under-23 athlete. And then the following two years as a senior A athlete, although I was still at an under-23 age group. Um, and that was not something that was planned. Um, I decided to row after school just to meet other people that weren't doing med and I had loved rowing through school and other friends were doing it. It was one of those kind of scenarios and, um, everyone else was going to trials for an underage state team. So I went to, and I made the team and it kind of just rolled on from there. Um, but I think, um, being in a sport that is um, highly competitive, so there are only um, two spots that go to the Olympics and six on the senior team, sometimes seven. Mm -hmm. um, it's, um, yeah, everyone's jostling for those positions at the top. And uh, the other, I suppose, side of it is was that it was a, a weight-based sport, so you had to be um, 57 kilos when you're rowing in a crew boat and 59 in a single. And... Um, that at times meant that you had to make weight acutely. Um, and so I think that just added a whole other layer of pressure um, in terms of you're not just thinking about the training that you're doing and recovering properly. You're also constantly aware of um, your nutrition mm -hmm. and um, the changes or fluctuations that were happening in your weight basically on a daily basis, yeah, which wow. really ramped up as you were coming into things like trials um, and also because I think that the um, way to do it in rowing is essentially to come down to 57 and not to be that weight, but to essentially lose the last, say, kilo, kilo and a half in fluid um, and through reducing your fibre. And, um, you know, at times that could be really mm -hmm. a really challenging thing. And I think having lots of young girls in high-pressure scenarios, often all living together... Um, 
all focused on an A number on the scales um, can create some pretty unhealthy behaviours and a bit of an unhealthy culture as well that was pretty pervasive. Mm. Yeah. I I think back to my own swimming career and had similar expectations around body weight placed on their career. Mm. Um, and I used to say I love swimming. Like mm. I yeah, I really did. I used to really believe that until I started in orienteering and I was able to take a step back and look in from the outside and go, oh, I really don't think I knew what love meant. Mm. Did you love rowing? Was it? Yeah, I loved rowing. Um, I loved um, the feeling of being masterful at something, mm. um, being on the water and um, there's an intellectual side to rowing in that it's not just about being the strongest, fittest athlete. Um, you have to be quite technical, particularly in the single, and how can you make this tiny 11-kilo boat with your body weight move as efficiently as possible? And um, in rowing, a lot of it is about the rhythm, and there's something um, really lovely about a sport that kind of combines those two elements but I think now, in hindsight, like you, Hanny, um, looking back, whilst I absolutely love the sport and at times I look at waterways and think, oh, it'd be awesome to be out rowing on that today, <laughs> um, I absolutely do not miss um, some of the extras that mm. came with that, you know, in terms of the weight. And, and I think there were probably some cultural issues with the sport in general, um, some sort of beliefs that didn't really sit well with me as an individual. Mm. Yeah. And my final question at this point is, were you happy in those years as a, as a very elite rower? Because there's a difference between loving something and actually yeah. still being happy while yeah. you're doing what you love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh, God, it was such a tortured relationship. Um, yeah, I lo- absolutely loved the sport, but I don't think that I was my most happy self I think the first couple of years when everything was a surprise like making your first team and not expecting to and everything was a joy and a um, like a bit of a revelation every time you did something Um, but that quickly I think was lost under the weight of expectations and um, I think the need to fit you know I think the issue with rowing is it's about lots of people in training centres and that's hard to manage and um, there wasn't much that was individualised about training or how you should go about things and certainly um, the way things were structured made higher education pretty challenging Mm. to combine and, um, you know, I, I had periods where I tried, like not doing med and just rowing and I just never felt like I was being completely true to myself, um, letting those really important sides of myself kind of have to go. Mm. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was yeah, a challenging kind of period. That, our next question is about the, the trade-offs. Like, so doing med and then the rowing mm. and even now kind of moving into the running. Yeah. Did you have to drop something in your life or did you find that you were compromising on, like, time with friends or doing other activities? Um, what did I have to drop my sanity? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, did I, oh, absolutely. And I think, um, like, I've talked about this with my family since I don't think I was the easiest person to live with because um, 
I was so single-minded and my um, timelines were so tight and I was so tired all the time that you just can't, you don't have any more of yourself to give to your family when you come home, um, to your friends, like if they weren't rowing or whatever, then it was really hard to make time to see them. Um, and I was in a relationship at the time and luckily they rode as well. But even that can be a challenging thing too when you're both trying to compete at that um, kind of higher level. So, yeah, I think that was probably the thing that I found hardest is that often you're quite isolated because mm. no one is really walking this um, path with you. And if you don't ever have time to um, be interested in other people, you're not fostering any relationships and Ultimately, if you don't give things back to those relationships, people step away until you're able to, you know, bring was, something to the table again. I was going to ask a question. I was going to ask it a bit later, but it feels really fitting now. Is, is do, do you feel that we have to put self first before helping others? Because, I mean, especially relevant for someone yeah. who's studying medicine and working in the medical field, because I think in our society it's kind of deemed a bit inappropriate to be selfish. Mm. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that because I, as in a, also as an elite athlete. Um, do you have to put yourself first? I mean, in some instances, you can't... Um, there are some things that have to be non-negotiable. At some point in time, you have to go to training um, and you have to make sure you get enough sleep and all of those sorts of things. But... You know, I, I don't know. I think it has ne it never sat well with me to be um, that focused on myself. And I actually think that I'm a better athlete when um, more, the majority of my life is focused on being part of a community, helping mm. other people. And I think my training or my performances have actually got better um, the less focused I've been on finishing that session 100% perfectly. Like if I've got a friend who who might be a lot slower than me jogging and have to walk half the time that we're out running, I would rather go and do that with them and foster that relationship and um, continue encouraging her to get out there on trails and enjoying running. Like that brings so much more to, to me. Yeah. And then I feel like the next time I go out on my own, I'm kind of filled up with that kind of joy of having done that with someone yeah, I, I'm really loving this because I've been grappling with it a little yeah. bit myself over time. I'm someone who loves helping people, but then finding sometimes you can get a bit fatigued or stretch yourself too far. And I think what I'm realising is even if maybe your actions can be a little bit selfish, like mm. you say, no, you need to go to bed early, whatever it is, but you're in, you live with this intention of helping others or yeah. being for others. And yeah. I kind of feel like there's two different parts to it, which is, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, took us off on a sidetrack. <laughs> no, um, but, but I think I don't think they have to be at odds with each other. You yeah. don't have to want to get the best out of yourself and that be um, completely at the expense of helping yes. other people. I think you can find a way to, to do both. Um, it's when you believe that looking after yourself means neglecting everyone else that that's that's then your reality yeah I think yeah. it's all about the way that you approach it in your head yeah um and that comes from someone who I think attended one out of the you know 20 or whatever 21st that were on the year we all turned 21 because <laughs> I was away or I was training or I left after 30 minutes because I wasn't <laughs> going to be drinking and 
Um, yeah, I think um, there's, yeah, they just don't have to exist in isolation. I, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. So I, but I'm curious to know, well, I'm not curious. I'm sure our audience <laughs> is curious. I should, <laughs> I okay. should know because just for those people listening, I've yeah worked with Han for a little while, um, giving her some assistance. But maybe it's worth then mentioning what, if you loved rowing that much, yeah, and you know you were you were that good at it. Why did why did we leave? <laughs> Essentially, um, my body made that decision for me. Um, so, yeah, like Han said, we've worked together for a while, so she knows my story quite well. But um, I suppose I had a back injury um, that was really significant. It was really difficult to um, get on top of. So I had three bulging discs with some other things going on. Um, and uh, it was when I went and saw a sports physician who said to me that in terms of pain management, we could start like repeat epidurals, which is, um, you know, essentially an anaesthetic procedure that they use for women in labour. And I thought, and he couldn't guarantee to me that I would be able to be a completely functional, healthy, healthy, healthy and happy human being in the future that I knew that um, that was going to be enough for me. Um, and I think too, it was just, um, I couldn't train the way that I needed to with this back injury. And, um, I could see that it was just going to be this never ending struggle. And, um, I just, yeah, came, I just knew in that moment Mm. that that was, that was my line in the sand. Um, and so that's how I came to stop rowing, um, how did you deal with the, I guess it's really an emotion mm. at that point that would have popped up, knowing how good you were, knowing that your body was saying no? Um, it's, I mean, it's a bereavement, like it's mm. a loss because it's, um, that is um, part of your identity, I think, you know, that um, this is who I am, this is what I do with myself. Um, and also you go from being someone who kind of has your life mapped out ahead of you. Like I know I've got to be at this set of trials, you know, at this time of year everywhere, I'm always on a camp over summer. So I'm never going to be at home. I'm occupied for the entire summer months, you know, I'm probably going to be overseas through, um, the European summer. Um, and suddenly all of that's gone and, um, the intensity of your day-to-day life is gone. And in lots of ways, your community is gone because they press on with all of those things. And I think as I kind of alluded to, it's a pretty isolating community and you sort of interact with each other, but it's really hard to interact with anyone outside that. And um, so, yeah, I think there was a lot of... um, I think just grieving over the fact that... um, I wasn't going to be able to achieve the things that I would have liked to achieve. Mm -hmm. And also that I couldn't foresee at that time that I would ever be able to get back in a boat. Um, At that stage, I hadn't slept overnight in over 18 months because every time I rolled over, I'd wake up with pain. Um, I was um, unable to sit, so I was always standing or lying, couldn't drive in the car for longer than 20 minutes. Um, And... Um, so it was, yeah, it was, I think the loss of all the things that, you know, kind of, um, took up my 
day-to-day existence but also this sense of something that I really loved I really connected to I never thought I'd get to experience that feeling again (laughs) Um, and that was it took a long time to kind of um, come to terms with Mm. more the loss of the actual sport than anything else I think because I knew I I was going going back to I was going to be in med again and I love medicine so Mm. I knew that I, I was happy that that was the life that I would lead um but yeah to feel like you're never going to be able to do this thing that you loved again and also to be that masterful at something and think oh that's probably you know it I'm just like one of the many now you know (laughs) um yeah all kind of big hits on your confidence and sense of self yeah how are you dealing with the back injury now that you've stopped um good question Kendall so I essentially did clinical pilates with a physio once or twice a week for an hour and saw the physio once or twice a week for like physical therapy I was diligent with my back exercises um I was really keen not to be on any medications um mainly because I'd been on heaps and I felt like they just mess with your system and I completely empathize with patients when they just don't want to take them because you do not feel like yourself particularly when you're on steroids and I also wanted that signal for my body to kind of, now that I wasn't under pressure, to get back to training or make it, you know, back in time for a set competition. I wanted to know, like, where I was up to with healing and to have that indicator of not that activity makes me unhappy and be really in tune with how things were going. But after probably, like, six months of, like, really, I that was something that I never, like, made excuses for. Um, it's I mean, now I'm pain-free. Could you go back to rowing or is it that's what triggered it and it would just... Uh, I'd had a back, I'd had a disc bulge as a um, 16-year-old, I think was my first one when I was rowing at school. So I think I'm probably prone to it and that it's a movement that um, the way that you're expected to train in rowing I don't think would ever work for me and I don't think the rowing culture is likely to change anytime soon. But I also think that I think that now I don't fit in the world of rowing in terms of how it's run and it's a bit square peg, round hole. And I don't think I would want to. I feel like for me, after sitting with that kind of grief for a long time and just feeling it there in the background, even though like day to day I was happy, it was like that awareness of kind of like something just making you feel a bit sad, a bit heavy. Mm. Um, I feel like uh, that feels like... Um, Hannah of those days and I am appreciative of that period of time in my life and I feel like I learned a heck of a lot from it and it made me um, a much better person which all sounds very cliched but um, I don't want to go back to it because that was then and I'm living in the now yeah (laughs) does that give you relief now that you know that chapter's closed and you don't feel like you need to go back, like you can look back with fond memories, but you don't feel the need to get back there or get back and you're happy where you are now? I think I don't feel the need to go back because I feel fulfilled from the things that I'm doing now. And I think that I've probably always been someone who, when something has ended, like, that's it for me. Like, I don't... It's... Like, I almost feel like diff- a different person every time a chapter closes. Like, I, mm. it's like that was that and that for me is over and I don't yearn for it because 
that door's closed but this window's open and I'm really intrigued by what's out there and I'd like to go wow. and explore that. <laughs> that is so cool. <laughs> um, I'm scribbling notes over here. <laughs> you know, I think, um, I, once again, I think it kind of all comes down to your mindset. Like, of course, you're going to grieve these things. It's like a big thing to happen to you, unexpected. It changes the kind of course that you were taking. But um, in all of those moments, I think there are always opportunities to um, do the things that you were prevented from doing when you were on that path because, like, there's a lot of other cool things out there and I don't think um, anything is ever a, a full stop. I think it's just a comma and an enter and a head off somewhere else, new paragraph. <laughs> so we've alluded to that you've started running since you've finished yeah. rowing. Has the rowing influenced how you've approached running at all? Oh, definitely initially. <laughs> I think I was a bit bullet gate and I would have liked everything to have happened yesterday and my um, to feel like I was hitting, I don't know, A qualified times from day dot. Um, and also this hangover of feeling like I needed to train these massive volumes. Um, when I rode, we trained every day, pretty much twice a day and sometimes three times a day. The hours were huge um, and it was lots of like low intensity, just lots of kilometres, whether that be on the water or riding a bike or in the gym on a stationary rowing machine. So I felt like that was how you trained for everything and if you weren't exhausted all the time, then you probably weren't training hard enough. Um, so it's it ha it's taken me a long time to kind of I think feel comfortable with the less is more notion and that some training sessions should feel like in fact I think most of them should feel a bit more like play um, a bit more like an exploration some curiosity about how you're going to respond today um, given what you've done that day given the temperature given what you've eaten okay well, what can I do in this kind of training session. Um, and I think also too, like letting go of this notion of the need to be um, perfect in inverted commas um, straight away. Um, I don't now I know, even though Hanny was telling me this from the start. Um, now I know you can't just take one body from one sport, transition it into another, and expect it to like it straight away. Um, rowing muscles are very different from running muscles, <laughs> and you have to. Even though my head was there already and I think you know the probably the aerobic side of it was there already it's it's taken a very long time for my um body to adapt to the load bearing nature of running yeah it's interesting Hannah because in the early days um I mean I, I can't even begin to put myself in your shoes and know how you can go from being an elite rower and knowing that you're good enough to be vying for Olympic selection to then be willing to go and stand as a beginner on the start line or, you know, pulling on your running shoes and going, <laughs> gee, I don't really know how to, you know, how, how the best way to do this is. Yeah. But, um, but I also, I guess I, I'm interested to know in those early days when we put you on the race start line, yeah. we had moments where your head was so strong that you pushed yourself so far that you even tore muscles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so what, what, is the, what could be a take-home message for people listening to this podcast 
about how to develop that yeah patience or that you know yeah. make that transition because I think all of us kind of want everything now yeah in, you know in our ideal world <laughs> um Oh, and if my mum was here, she would be laughing at this because I'm the most impatient person, I think, known to mankind. <laughs> but um, this whole journey definitely has taught me um, a patience for myself. And I think mm. often we are much more patient with other people than we are with ourselves. Um, and, yeah, it's, it is challenging when you feel like you've been really good at something to... Um, suddenly not just not know you know it's it's such a different thing to have been on a start line and know exactly how it should feel at every stage of a race and um, what kind of flow state I was looking for to you know then really not having any clue if I could sustain any sort of pace or how hard it should feel or um, and then sometimes thinking you know, I'm going away to, like, I just had no idea and the whole thing was completely foreign. But I think um, now I recognise that it's about finding the joy in that process too. I think now when I stand on a start line, um, I am just excited for that opportunity as it is, you know, and you can laugh at yourself. Like, it is funny that you've lined up on a start line and, you know, seven kilometres in, I've completely torn my quad muscle and <laughs> I'm standing on the side of the Great Ocean Road and I'm sort of trying to hobble along and I've had, like, ten people say to me, can you just get in the back of the St John's Ambulance because you are not going to make it. <laughs> um, like, that's sort of fun. You know, I mean, not at the time. It's pretty painful, but... It, it's kind of funny and uh you know I raced two weeks ago I flew down from Mildura the night before I had a wedding on that afternoon I got up really early I had no sleep I rocked up to the start line it had been 40 degrees in Mildura and it was five degrees up the top of Mount Dandenong and I did no warm-up and I was you know the start of my race was a complete disaster like it was awful I couldn't run downhill because I completely seized um, and so I was passed by everyone. I think the entire field passed me in those first four kilometres. But then I was like, okay, well, you know, that has happened and now how can I make a game out of this? So it was about, like, counting the number of women I could pass and, you know, I think I got up to 50 or something like that. I think it should indicate how far back I was. But, like, it's all a learning experience and I don't think... Um, anything is lost through any of those moments you've just gained experience and um I think that's part of the joy too like is the process of becoming masterful at something and if you've just gotten there and it was easy well why did you bother in the first place because mm. you've not grown in that time it was just natural to you and it's not really all that exciting whereas I think yeah. when you can look back and go look how far I've come, that's when you feel like you've actually achieved oh. something. <laughs> it's, it's so good. That, yeah. yeah. I have a, a question. Why sure. did you pick running? Sure. So that you went from rowing and then just... Mm. I have always loved running. So um, my mum and dad used to run every morning together um, and being one of four kids with two full-time working parents... If you wanted time with just your mum and dad, that was the time to go. And it was like 5.30 in the morning and we might have had our lab with us too. Um, 
and so that was probably where it started from was like this f- and they they you know they were so joyful doing it and the dogs so joyful doing it. it's like this you know fun thing to do um so I've always run just for um pleasure and myself and even when I was rowing I often would you like throw in running as a cross training modality rather than getting on the ergo again it was it just felt like freedom to be able to go for a run um because there was no expectations on it either um unlike all the other training things I was doing and also then because I didn't have a GPS watch it was the only thing I did that was unmeasured that Mm. didn't have a number attached to it it was just for me and going by feel wherever I liked and for how long I liked. Um, And when I um, first got injured and had to pull out of Australian team trials, um, about a year before I actually stopped or two years before I actually stopped rowing, I decided to do... I was going overseas with my sister because I'd taken time off from uni anyway, so we decided to go on holiday, and I decided to do a marathon in Switzerland because, like, why not? And our rowing team doctor said, you know, you should get a coach before you attempt to do something like that. And her brother had used Tani um, to do, I think, what's now the Ultra Trail 100 or 50. And so I got in touch with Han and she gave me this awesome program and I got to Davos and I have never had so much fun. I thought this thing was just, like, I was, like, grinning from ear to ear from the moment I got there. I, lo- I was laughing for the first 5Ks because it was just this like how did I make it here how am I running through this Swiss forest with no one else from Australia it was all you know sort of the Nordic countries all males pretty much um and everyone was so um jovial and wanted to chat the whole way and you know I couldn't believe that you could do this that you could get out and run up this mountain into the snow up the top and then kamikaze your way (laughs) back down and it was horrendous but it was awesome and I that was when I really thought wow this running thing like can take you to some pretty cool places and Han nailed it I just have to add that (laughs) as her like coach at the time speaking yeah we had a really really good result there Mm. and I it just, you came back with this new fire in your belly that I hadn't, I really probably hadn't seen that side of you yet. Um, And that playful side, you know, became very strong. Yeah. Something we've had. I felt like it probably broke me out of the monotony of the training that I'd Mm. been doing. Um, It was so different. And then the event itself was so, I mean, it's polar opposites to um, sitting on your bottom, moving backwards down a concrete man-made course in the sort of boondocks of, you know, regional European cities um, for seven and a half minutes. Like, it's at sort of polar opposite ends. But I don't know, I think that was kind of the moment I was like, um, there are some really cool other things out there to do. And, you know, then I buried myself back in the rowing for a couple of years. And then when I stopped rowing, I remember I was driving back from... Um, Sydney with my mum and I said to her you know I just don't feel like my days of competing are done yet and I think that I'm gonna try the running thing but I'm gonna wait um, for a couple of months because I don't want this to be like a reflex reaction of losing one thing and immediately throwing yourself into something else so that you never have to deal with the first loss and um the desire to 
do the running stuff only increased. I think the further I got from rowing and um, it was something that made me feel kind of excited to get out there and do again. Um, and that's kind of what's led us to now. <laughs> <laughs> was there any fear when you moved to running that your back would worry you? Do you know, I never thought about it. Like, I just never conceptualised that <laughs> could be an issue. Actually, um, Han did say to me that she had some concerns about me moving into um, running, that it would flare things up and that I could, you know, lots of people do have issues with their back running, but I just had this feeling that it was going to be fine and I have never had a day of back pain running no matter what train I've been on, no matter how long I've been out there doing it. Um, and even when I was injured, I, it was probably the one activity where I, I actually felt like more like a functioning human. So um, touch wood. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's never been an issue. What has been, because uh, I know... We talk about recovery, but yeah. the way I've helped you is that I've said recovery is important. Here's a few things yeah. to think about, but please go away and work out what works for you. What have you found has worked for you to ensure that you're getting ad- adequate recovery mm. so we don't go back into sort of old patterns of injury, mm. per se? Um, what's been the most important? <sighs> I mean, it all sounds so pedestrian, but I think all these things are so much harder to do in practice than they are to say. (laughs) Um, I think that sleep is super important. Um, This is something I've struggled with enormously because um, the nature of most medical specialties is that you have to be on the ward early and the practicality of getting out the door and going running at 5 or 4.30 in the morning is sometimes... Like, sometimes that's just not going to happen. So um, I have learnt that I have to prioritise sleep, even if it means that I am doing my tempo session, like last night, at 7 o'clock at night. That is a better time to do it than having kind of really stuffed up your sleep cycle. So I think getting into regular sleep patterns is really important as much as you can. And... Um, then recognising when you are becoming more fatigued and getting on top of it early. So for me, the indicators are when I start to get a bit weary around sort of 6 or 7 o'clock at night, when normally I'd be fine until 9 or 10 o'clock at night, that's like a, okay, you need to probably either start going to bed earlier or pull back on some activities. And same with if I'm reaching for more caffeine than usual, rather than having more caffeine, that's an indicator to... um, fix some of the other things I think um, for me the biggest um, thing that contributes to my stress is actually mental fatigue so it's less about the physicality and more about the mental side of things and I think most people and definitely most women can relate to that because I think a lot of people (laughs) I'm not in my head (laughs) I think a lot of people internalize um, you know that sort of constant mind ticking over thinking through all the things you've got to get done and then all the things you'd like to get done and feeling like you're not doing enough or not doing a good enough job even when you've done that job um that internal noise I think is the biggest contributor to stress for most people so I think finding ways to download all of that and just let it go and that can be different for lots of different people but for me um I am a list maker 
and that used to feel like a burden but now it's something that I write a list of the things at night time that are weighing on my mind and then I close the book and it goes in a different room it goes by my front door um it's not in my bedroom with me it's not something I have to think about anymore but those are like things to think about later and I know I've written them down so I'm not going to forget them but they're not for now and then I think too having people in your life that you can download with so that you kind of air some of these things and then like the problem shared is halved you know it's no longer just your problem and you can often get better perspective on it so it weighs on you less so for me I think being less of a solo practitioner and actually talking to people and using people um, and this is something I still battle with but sort of probably talking more about how I'm feeling or how stressed I'm feeling and worrying less about the need to feel seem like I'm on top of everything and seem Mm. like I'm doing everything perfectly and I'm this cool calm collected person sailing through you know um easy waters (laughs) Um, which is often not the reality and then finally I think and this is a bit of a new discovery given um probably some slightly disordered eating patterns in the past but I think um as seems to be pretty in vogue at the moment moving towards plant sort of plant-based nutrition I've also seen um some really good benefits for me um and I'm someone who's very skeptical of kind of anecdotal advice like immediately for me if it's not scientifically backed (laughs) I'm pretty wary but um yeah in my study of n equals one I've seen (laughs) some very good results yeah it's funny because I asked you when you were recently on a rotation and things were getting tough and I yeah. said, are you eating well and, you know, what are you, what are you doing? And I could feel this sort of slight awkwardness on the other end of the phone going, well, I may have just been trying plant-based and I let you rattle for a while and then I was like, yeah, me too. <laughs> and then we're like, oh, oh, okay. And, awesome. Um, yeah, and we both were saying how sort of almost naively we'd both jumped Mm. into that pond but had both been starting to see the same sorts Mm. of results like recovering quickly and feeling the stress levels drop or being Mm. able to read your body with more clarity after you'd had food and were out exercising yeah so um but I also get the feeling that came from a self-compassion point of view for you as well that transition yeah I, I think so um I think that um for women in general but particularly in the sporting arena diet and your kind of behaviors around diet are really taboo and people are really um unwilling to be really honest about the way that they feel about food the way they behave around food and I think often I've noticed in both the community and then in sporting communities conversations about each other and how people behave around food are often really judgmental, really destructive. Um, And I think I'd grown up in a household where no one ever weighed themselves. Um, I never heard my mum say anything about the way that she looked or, like, it was just this completely... There was just no focus on, like, your external appearance and um, everyone's behaviours were just to do with health rather than anything else. I'd never even thought about the way that I looked or the weight that I had no idea. I had no idea what I weighed. And then I came into this sport where, like I said, I had to be a certain weight. And 
I think it doesn't matter how rock solid your mentality is. If you're in that environment on a daily basis, it infiltrates the way that you think. And even just having to think about food all the time impacts the way that you think. And um, even if you want to deny it, I think your behaviours change. And I think certainly for me, um, for a long time after I stopped trying, really, I think if I'm being honest until pretty recently, I probably was often restrictive without even really realising it. Or even if I wasn't being restrictive and seemed really relaxed about everything, my internal conversations with myself were really pretty negative. Mm. And I was really hard on myself about the way that I went about things. Um, And then I would get angry at myself for... um, doing it in the first place like it was kind of this sort of vicious cycle like you should be above this kind of thinking you've never get you know you've never cared about this and you advocate that everyone should just love the skin there you know all those sorts of things and I couldn't do it for myself yeah um and so I think a, a big part of it was like this conscious like break from um that was the way that I did things and it helped me to achieve that goal at that point in time, but it's not serving me now. And I think this having this big break from um, even like any kind of eating in the same way, doing something completely different where, you know, I was never going to know the calorie content of something or the carbohydrate content of something. All I was going to know was that it came from the ground and it hadn't been processed and less damage had been done to the environment in the process like they're the only rules so none of them have to do with me mm-hmm. um I think has just helped recalibrate or helped me get back to I think who I used to be before all that kind of external influence like I eat when I'm hungry well most of the time unless I'm on the odds in which case most of the time I'm starving and dying to get back <laughs> to something to eat but yeah you eat when you're hungry Sometimes you're going to want things that, you know, some people would deem like bad foods, but if you have it, that's okay. Like you can because, you know, really you're just eating according to what your body is asking for. And I think when you do that, you're never going to eat too much. Mm -hmm. You're never going to eat too much of the, in inverted commas, wrong things. You're just going to be looking after yourself. It's funny, Hannah, because I jumped in that deep end for this for the exact same reasons, the, the same transition, mm. because I think I too, from coming from my swimming days, have lived with a restricted eating plus my athletics days. Yeah, and I got to this point where I realised like I had to find a way to not restrict things but Mm. to add things Mm. and the only way that I could see to do it plus having seen the benefits actually from Kendall and Kendall's husband that I run with um, of you know recovery and feeling good about themselves and living with vitality but plant-based seemed like a really good way to go and now that's the only thing that ever crosses my brain is like Mm. how can I add more nutrition Mm. and more vitality to this meal that I'm preparing right here, right now. It's, yeah. It's really interesting. It's it's like a light goes on in your brain. and a Yeah, it's, um, it is such a different way to live. I think when you are free of the weight of that expectation of yourself or um, 
I just think that you get back to kind of when you're a kid and, you know, when you were hungry you ate something and when you weren't you didn't and um, it just wasn't the focus of your day. Like it was great when you were there for dinner and you were just as excited to leave and go and run around and when you went to a party it was really good fun because you had whatever you felt like and you might have felt a bit sick afterwards but you didn't you know what I mean that's party day and then you moved on with your life rather than I think I think a lot of people a lot of women walk around with this kind of they're constantly thinking about what they're eating and how that's going to affect them from a superficial kind of point of view they should be doing this or they should be doing that they should look a certain way um, and all of that stuff is really destructive. Mm. I mean, I don't, that's that's my mm. kind of impression of where things are at. Yeah. So, what have been the positive? Have you seen positives since you moved to a plant based in terms of your athleticism? Oh, most definitely. Um, I think that the residual soreness from hard sessions that I used to carry, I just don't feel mm. that anymore. Um, I think, like, recently I had a three-hour run on the program. I was up in Mildura, so it was something like 35 degrees um, for the majority of the time I was running, which is a big, you know, that's a big toll, not just the distance, but in that heat. Um, you can't have replaced your fluids or um, nutrition enough. Um, and I really felt fine that, you know, even that afternoon I was out doing things and, um, I've never had experienced that before. No. <laughs> um, I also feel like in terms of even when I'm not doing athletic things, so when I'm at the hospital and I'm on my feet all day, I used to really have those energy slumps that I think lots of people have, like that classic 3 o'clock slump, which for me often occurred at 11 in the morning. Like morning tea time was just awful following like exercising in the morning, being busy all morning, and, and that morning tea time I was just ravenous. I couldn't concentrate. Um, whereas now I feel like I'm really sharp mentally the whole day and like I can just keep going until the job is done and then I might be tired when I go home but whilst I need to be on I can be and I think um, I've just felt lighter in myself when I've been training um, lighter sort of in my step but also too like I probably used to always feel pretty bloated and uncomfortable um, when I was training, I had to be so careful with how much I consumed and how long before. And a lot of that has really improved um, since moving to plant-based. I've always had issues, like digestive type issues, just to be totally honest about it. And um, yeah, I've just felt almost like a different kind of person. Um, yeah. Oh. I it's gonna. I'm getting excited, Kendall. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know about you, but you're grinning. But I think well. too, like um, from the medical perspective too. I think what is not to love about something that you feel is gonna um, ensure your health long term, like um, when you're surrounded on a day to day basis by like our hospitals really are full of people who unfortunately have been fed something that has been pretty awful for them the majority of their lifetime. And I don't put any blame on those people. Like, if that's what's available and that's what you had as a kid, like, that's what you're going to keep having your whole life. Um, but the implications of those kinds of diets and our largely sedentary lifestyle are really 
really awful. Like, mm. I think we think of diabetes as this really sort of innocent condition, but it, it isn't, you know, like it's aw- it's truly awful. Um, and I think it's really sad to think that a lot of the things that people are experiencing just never had to happen. They're not because of some sort of genetic inborn mm. error. It's because of the way <clears throat> that we live and that we encourage each other to live. Mm. Um and so I think I like feeling like it, um, even if it's in a subtle and under-the-radar type way that I'm living in a way that is an example for, I guess, the people I'm going to be treating. It feels kind of hollow, I think, to um, be treating people's health and be advocating for good health if you're not doing the things that you know are the best way to, mm. to ensure that. Yeah. Yes, completely. Um so Hannah, what drives you? <laughs> what a question! <laughs> I know I'm really putting it out there. I'm, I'm really curious. Like, how? Sorry, twenty five. Yeah. Yep. So wise. <laughs> I don't know about that. You are. I mean, but you but you're willing to put yourself out there. I think, and that shows maturity. And I I'm curious, like, what what drives you? Um. I have always felt like um, when you have been, um, I don't know, I feel like we here in Australia, the majority of us, have almost been born under a lucky star. We live in a phenomenal country. I was lucky enough to have a family for, you know, despite all our familial flaws, you know, you're completely loved and well supported no matter what you choose to do with yourself. Um given a brilliant education like it, the onus is on you to make the most of that because how many people would kill to be in that kind of a position so I think I've always felt like it was my responsibility to try and be the best kind of person that I could be and a lot of that came from I think mum because she um, always fostered with us that we didn't have to be the best at anything but you had to try your best in whatever that meant as a as a mark of like um, appreciation for the fact that you were at a good school or that you were given the opportunity to play any sport under the sun like just try do the best that you can um and I think part of doing the best that you can is that not only are you trying to improve yourself on a day-to-day basis in whatever arena but um you're trying to be the best member of a community that you can and I always have felt a strong need to contribute in some way, like in whatever that meant, um, that your life isn't just about you, it's about helping the people around you, even if that's not in ways that are going to be, like, remembered or on history books. So it's just, like, in those small ways, knowing that you've made um, a difference to someone else, um, improved their day or their minute in whatever way, um, like, that's... um, yeah, I think that's also your responsibility when you've um, been given the gift of this kind of life. Mm. <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I need to go home and do some homework. <laughs> Look, but I think part of that also plays into I'm 100% a type A personality. So mixed in with that is this need to, I think, always do your best because that's what you want when you're type A and um, 
So it can be a really positive driving force to do those things, but it can also be like pretty destructive on the other end if you're constantly pushing, constantly mm-hmm. striving and never just being content also to just be and enjoy. In the now. In the now, yeah. If you're always trying to do better, be better, I think you forget to live for right now. Mm. All the talk about community and giving mm. back and then your goals, how important is a support network for you to have? Um, essential. <laughs> um, I think that I probably used to like to believe that I um, was doing this just all on my own. But, um, I mean, the reality is that you... Well, I, th- I think you can achieve some things on your own, but essentially, like, it's pretty hollow because, like, you'd get to the end and, well, what's the, like, you know you've done it, but no one is there to, you know, revel in it with you and it's the celebration of it with other people that's, I think, actually what brings you the joy, not the knowledge of just doing it on your own. Um, so for me, yeah, I mean, my support network is so crucial to, um, not just like achieving things, but my enjoyment of it on a day to day basis. Um, I'm so, so lucky to have, I'm one of four, I'm the eldest. There are four of us born within five years. So we are really tight as a sibling unit and, um, I feel really lucky that I've got that kind of like band of like you know this kind of army around me of um you know people that will I know unconditionally will go into bat for me because that's what I do for them too um and then similarly my parents I think um in lots of the little ways like the doing my grocery shopping for me when I've been really busy um coming home to have find some washing that's been done for me you know those little things but also, um, I mean, there's no better support than knowing that no matter what happens or how many times you fail, that you've got this like you know safety net. Essentially, they will love you regardless, and also be there to prop you back up and help you on the road to the next thing. You know, their support has been completely unconditional, even when I think at times they doubted um, the aims or you know. I think they questioned how much joy I was getting out of some things at times and um, so they've been crucially important. And then I think it's surrounding yourself with um, people in the different areas of your life that um, help to guide you and keep you in touch with, like, who you are, um, but also, like, that bring you joy too. So Han has been, like, so crucial in this process for me because... Um, as an athlete, I'd never had a coach that I felt like I could actually connect with and all that I felt like really recognised me as an individual human being. And um, so having someone that I know is just there to support me, um, I think that understands me and um, I know is um, supporting me, not in a like ex- expectation kind of way, but just there to ride the ups and the downs and um, is there for the journey, it has been just the most I think that's actually been the thing that has helped me transition from one sport to another um that's it's been a revelation to be honest because I've never had that in sport before this feeling like I wasn't a lone wolf that there was someone there for me has been 
really incredible. And then I'm just really lucky to have friends in all the different areas of my life who, particularly old school friends who I think just know me as like Daddy Han um, <laughs> and like really couldn't give a shit about <laughs> what I'm doing in bed or like what I'm doing with running around and like whatever, like can we just chat about, like they don't even, you know what they are, but like they sort of free me of needing to talk about those sorts of things and that's also really important. So <laughs> support is crucial. <laughs> it's one thing to have support but it's another thing to be able to act on the words of wisdom or the support that you receive mm. and I I think sometimes, you know, when we're in the thick of it, we're like, oh, I just wish someone would tell me what to do but that, that you know, looking in from the outside as someone who has been part of your journey, mm. that's not the way you operate. You know, you you take on board or you, or you hear it, you mm. internalise it and then you execute it in a version of the advice that works for you and that, I think, is your special quality and <laughs> I'm sure it's why you got well, you get to where you get to with your goals. Mm. Um, but, you know, and I think that's probably taught me a lot as well because when you were saying I was always the person who thought they could probably <laughs> just do it on my own you know you've really shown me actually sometimes it's really important to let other people into that journey yeah. and to let other people celebrate you yeah know, the small wins yeah with you. I think though like that's only something that's been learned through um trial and error lots and lots of error um <laughs> <laughs> that like uh, definitely I'm an internaliser and um, often like I'll sit with something and I'll process it and I won't vocalise anything and then I come to this kind of decision and um, people that have been important in my life have kind of been like, wait, I need to deal with this now. Like I know you're fine with it but like I'm not because whilst you've been processing this I haven't known any of that or been part of any of that. So whilst you feel fine, like I'm kind of like, oh, mm. like how are you not more distressed? Like it's... It, it creates difficulties because when people expect you to be distressed, well, you've just spent the last two months thinking about something and they're only getting in kind of <laughs> on the end of all of that. Um, but also too, like I think um, even though you feel like if you just like sit with something for long enough, I feel like I can work anything out. But um, having different perspective I've found is actually really crucial to not repeating your mistakes because your natural tendency is to just always operate the way that you've always <laughs> operated even if you've convinced yourself it's totally different to the last time you did it um it's not and I think you need those people to kind of like pull you up and be like why are you doing that again like have we not had enough hardship the first 20,000 times we talked through you know various iterations of this same problem with you um yeah, so it's been, yeah, and I think part of that is, like, losing a bit of ego because you have to lose a bit of face to say, like, I don't actually know what I'm doing or um, I'm really struggling with this and guess what, I'm not actually going to be able to cope with all the things I've loaded myself up with. And once again, part of that is it's that same old needing to appear perfect, needing to appear on top of things. Yeah, and it's a bit like boy who cried wolf, mm. but what I've worked out with you over time is that 
you've learnt to ask a lot more questions. <laughs> Not that I'm saying I always have the answers, but by having the discussion around it, it's helped you kind of come to the answers, whereas sometimes when you sit quiet for too long, you sort of think that, yeah, you're, you're doing good. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It's, been, yeah, it's been really fun actually seeing that journey with you. I'm, I'm curious, Lehan, like we've talked about lots of like the internal and external yeah. pressures that you face. We've talked a lot about some of your drivers, but there's one thing that, I'm kind of still curious about you're in competitive world still with mm. athleticism. I mean, I guess in, in some ways, like we, gosh, we play a lot. <laughs> we yeah, have a lot of fun. Sort of. <laughs> we, we do. We have a lot of yeah. fun with, with everything you're doing. But um, it's undeniable that you have goals that involve competition. So yeah. are you a competitive person? Do you? Um, yeah. Am I a competitive person? <laughs> Once again, like just ask anyone who plays Monopoly with me I guess but um (laughs) like yes I am but I think that competitiveness um has always been with myself so it has never been um I've never had that kind of you know animosity with like the person that's your big competitor like I just have never cared really it was always about this anxiety to just really do the best job that I could do and um yeah, once I believed that I could be really good at something, like, to absolutely go for that. So definitely I'm a competitive person, but it's probably less of that traditional competitiveness and um, certainly in running it's not externally focused (laughs) at this stage. Who knows, I could change, but, yeah. I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we touched on that you're going to become officially doctor end of the year, and yeah. you're at the moment you're managing like running and everything. You're doing really well, and you've learned how to read your body. Mm. Do you think that's going to change at the end of the year yeah. once it's all you know all the way you've been moving along is all changed up? Yeah, um, I think some things will change and some things won't. Um, I think the benefit of this final year of the way the course I'm in works is that. Our final three years are all clinically based, so we're just at hospitals doing rotations, and um, my final exams are all done. And this year is called our pre-intern year, so the purpose is to rotate through the things you'll do as an intern and to learn not the medicine per se, but how to do the jobs that an intern would do. So it's it's less about you know seeing the patients and and learning all about their conditions, it's more about, okay, so when you see a patient with this, then what are the rest of the jobs for the day? How do you actually manage a patient almost from an administrative level in a hospital um, and to carry out the plans that the consultants or the head doctors, you know, sort of ask for? So from that point of view, I feel like I kind of get this test run before I'm employed. Um, I think that and uh, in terms of hours, it's really variable depending on what you're working. So when you're on ED, you do shifts, and you, when your shift ends, essentially you get to go home. Um, when you're on surgical rotations, you have to be there really early. Um, and if you're in theatre and the case takes a long time, well, you, you're going to get be leaving late. Um, so I think that there will be some elements that change in that, you know, at the moment, if I really need to, I could leave um, it wouldn't look very good, but I could leave if I needed to leave early, um, if I gave people notice. But once you're employed, obviously, you're there till you're there till that's your job and you have to be there. Um, but I think 
that I'll, I'll have a pretty good handle of what it's going to be like. But that also depends on the hospital that I end up at because um, the hospitals that are in Melbourne have very different cultures and what's expected of you can be really different and the way that they roster you can be really different. So I feel like if I'm at one of the hospitals I've been at before, I'll really know kind of what's expected. But if I end up somewhere where I haven't been, um, then, yeah, it will be kind of a whole different kettle of fish to what I've experienced before, yeah. Do you ever worry about loading yourself up too much and burning out or just <laughs> reaching that point? Uh, yeah, <laughs> mainly because I've had, like, overtraining syndrome before um, and probably my natural tendency is to say yes to more things than I say no to um, and forgetting that there are only 24 hours in a day and that eight of those do need to be spent sleeping. Um, so, yeah, I do worry about that. Um, and I think there's um, probably in the back of my mind a little bit of like, oh, will I actually be able to like manage these things? But like life is long. So if the things I want to do next year can't happen next year, like I will be able to make time for them at some point if they continue to be important to me. And I think that's the key thing is that it might not happen right in the timeline or in the way that you wanted it to, but if it's still really important to you and it's something that you still think about and that you still really just want to throw yourself into, well, at some point in time you'll, you'll make time for that. Or at least that's what I've learnt, that at some point in time I have to make time for that because otherwise... Um, you'd get to the end and your life would be a series of having ticked off the things that you should do rather than actually ever getting to the, do the things that you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, look, talk to me in a year. But <laughs> at this stage, I, I feel quietly confident that um, eventually I will be able to um, make these things happen. And that's also largely been because thus far with the running stuff, I've had to go about it in a really different way to the way that I had initially thought, but slowly I'm managing to get to the things that I wanted to get to. Um, yeah. So just for again the joy mm. of anyone listening, <laughs> of which there are many now. Um, what what is the not the dream, but you know, what are we focusing on with the running now for you? Ah, oh, you're really testing me here, honey. I hate to have to verbalise these things, but um, at the moment, I'm focusing more on some trail stuff. Um, so I think after having stepped away from competition last year, I wanted to come back into competitive stuff um, in a forum that. I've always found to be completely joyful rather than there being kind of more expectations because I know when I get on the road I have an idea of what I'd like to do and it would be really tough to not constantly be pushing for that too early. Um, So I'm really enjoying doing some trail stuff through the first half of this year. And I think ultimately I'd really love to um, test myself over a road marathon Um, and to just see how fast I could go. <laughs> yeah. 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 Brilliant. I'm, I'm all for this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're, we're hoping that, and, you know, there are many people who've been listening who've been 
you know, embarking for the first time ever on the Ultra Trail Australia, which is one of the biggest races in yeah. Australia. And, you know, I'm pretty excited that we hope, you know, all going well, that it'll be one of your first yeah. big trail yeah, races. Yeah, I'm stoked to. Um, yeah. That was one of the things, you know, when I was doing other stuff that, like this massive event happening and um, the rowing course, coincidentally, is not far from the Blue Mountains. It's in Penrith. Um, and I had always thought, oh, God, that looks like such a cool thing to go and do. And that's so exciting. Now I'm at a point where hopefully I can get out there and give it a go too. It's that example of realising can't do it all now, but if yeah. it's really meaningful to you, you will find a way to do it in the future. It's yeah, a classic it'll, example it of that. It will come <laughs> so, your way. It will yeah. come your way. 50 kilometres yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I guess to finish off then... Um, what, if you reflect on the discussion we've just mm. had today, I mean, it's a snapshot of Hannah and the journey she's been on, knowing as well that there are lots of people who also have these challenges of being busy and, you know, wondering if they feel right or look yeah. right or, you know, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, what could be a take-home for someone? What You know, do you have... One final little word of wisdom for us. Directed it at me. I'm loving this conversation. (laughs) Probably not summarised into a beautiful soundbite. I think that my take-home message is to find your joy, whatever that may be. Because if you follow what makes you joyful, I just don't think you're ever going to run into trouble with... um, it all feeling like it's too much or too hard or um, because you always want to get out there and do that. And also when things do get hard, then it's something easy to come back to that at its core this was something that you did because it made you happy in a way that um, other things in your life didn't. It adds something. Um, And... I think then to the sort of external pressures that we often experience kind of slip away because this is just for you and it's not something you do for anyone else and the reasons you do it no one else has to understand. Um, and I think that's, yeah, it's what you hope for everyone, that they, they find that thing that makes their toes tingle um, and that brings them joy. There you go. What are you raking candles? Let's go find our joy. Yeah, Happy go place. find your joy. Happy place to <laughs> <laughs> I'm feeling the need to go for a yeah. run. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, for us in conclusion, it's been joyful starting the podcast because we are coming into connection, both Kendall and I, with all these extraordinary people who I think are finding their joy, aren't they, Kendall? Definitely. Yeah, so... And we're helping spread that, hopefully. Yeah, and sharing your voice with an audience that otherwise wouldn't connect with you and as someone said to us please keep finding people who fly under the radar <laughs> <laughs> do we do that today Kendall? I, I definitely think we did <laughs> thanks so much Hannah oh, thank, thank you, you for having me